in the year 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius erupted and covered the city of Pompeii in dust, debris, and ash, killing about 2,000 people in that city alone. And the volcanic ash didn't just bury the city and kill all these people. It also preserved the bodies of many of those who died, to the point that their final moments, trying to crawl and escape, covering their faces, clinging on to one another, and their final expressions of terror have also been preserved. But the reality is that none of these people needed to die. In fact, thousands of people from that city safely evacuated before all this happened because there were a lot of warning signs they had leading up to that fateful day. For example, there were a large number of small earthquakes that took place leading up to the eruption. Now, these were somewhat common in the area, but the frequency sure was greater. Of course, some people brushed that off. But then, then fish started to die, and they were floating in the river. Wells dried up. Animals started to leave the area. The plants on the slopes of the volcano were dying. Now, these things might have convinced some people that something was about to happen, but, but most of the individuals, well, they needed a little more convincing. And that's when it happened. One morning, a loud, earth-shattering boom blasted ash and fire and rock into the sky as the volcano erupted. That initial eruption is said to have shot so high into the air, it could have been seen hundreds of miles away. Well, it didn't take long for the dust and ash to start to fall to the earth. The, the air became hard to breathe. As you can imagine, for a lot of people, this, this was the sign that they couldn't ignore. And they decided to leave the city but not all of them. For whatever reason, even as buildings collapsed under the weight of the ash, some people chose to stay. Another booming eruption brought more rock and burning ash. Soon, centimeters of ash on the street turned to feet. Feet turned to waist deep, and waist deep turned to burial. The ones who chose to stay, they were out of time. They couldn't outrun this anymore, even if they wanted to. And it's quite eerie, if you've ever gone online, looked at any of the pictures of these things. Honestly, it's heartbreaking to see these people frozen in their final state of fear. And maybe for some of us, maybe the story is heartbreaking to hear it or if you've seen these things. Of course, if we're honest, for others of us, I mean, it's not really that heartbreaking. After all, we're pretty far removed from where and when this happened. But maybe... Maybe if it was our loved ones, or our neighbors, or our friends who were left to such a terrible fate, maybe then we would be heartbroken over these things. And the sad truth is that many people in our world today are headed for a far worse fate than the residents of Pompeii. There are many people in this life who are headed for an eternity in hell separated from Jesus Christ. And as we've seen so far in our study in Romans, there, there are many Many signs given to people to point them to Jesus Christ, like God's creation or their conscience within them. Yet many people choose to stay in sin and unbelief rather than flee to Jesus Christ and be saved. And that, that should be heartbreaking for us believers. It was heartbreaking for the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see that together as we turn to Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to go ahead and take it out and turn there with me. Romans chapter 9. 
If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to use one of those Bibles under the seats in front of you. If you'd like to use one of those, you can turn to page 917. Page 917, Romans chapter 9. There's quite a bit that we're going to look at together in this chapter, so I'd encourage you to follow along the very best that you can. There's a lot of great things for us to see. Romans 9, verse 1, Paul begins this way. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Now, if you were here with us last week, we are in Romans chapter 8, and in Romans chapter 8, we saw some of the most powerful and encouraging words to followers of Jesus Christ. The fact that there is nothing in this life, in this world, or in the spiritual realm that can ever separate us from the love of God. And after such a triumphal statement, Paul now starts talking about sorrow. Because you see, that, that love of God he had talked about, the promise of our eternal security, the surety of our salvation, is something that Paul knew many of the Jewish people we're missing out on. Now, Paul had seen the acceptance and rejection of Jesus by both Jews and Gentiles. But one of the things that made the Jewish rejection of Jesus particularly heartbreaking is that the Jews had been given so much more than everyone else to point them to Jesus Christ. Well, they had the covenants. They had the law, the temple, the promises. The Messiah himself came to the lost sheep of Israel. See, Paul was heartbroken. Because despite all that the Jews had to salvation, their lack of faith kept them from receiving salvation. By and large, the Jews, they, they had missed it. They had missed the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, and so they crucified him. And more than that, now they were rejecting the truth of the gospel. They were rejecting the eternal life that Jesus offers. Paul saw all these people in Israel, all these people claiming to be the people of God, who he realized they were actually headed for an eternity in hell. And Paul says, if I could, I'd switch places with them. Now we know that Paul couldn't do that because nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. But we need to understand this anguish Paul felt. You see, Israel had long been the special people of God. God chose that through the nation of Israel, he would send his covenant. That he would make known his law. He would reveal the proper worship of him. Well, it's through Israel that God gave the great promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. God's goodness towards Israel, it's, it's incredible. It's hard to put into words. But Paul is going to. And to understand Paul's heartbreak, we need, we need to understand the grace and mercy of God towards Israel. And believers, when we do, it should cause us to praise God for his grace and mercy towards us. Let's look at verse 6. It's not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. 
nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's pause right there. God's word to Israel didn't fail. It's important that Paul said that because, you see, some of the Jews who had heard his teaching might have thought that that's what Paul was trying to say. I mean, they're God's chosen nation, right? Well, they're the, the people of God. How could they not be saved? How could they not be in the love of God, Paul? So Paul is going to show them that God, in his grace, chose Israel to be the nation that would receive his covenants, his promises, the law, the temple, and the Messiah. And he's going to show them that receiving these things didn't mean that they automatically received salvation. Of course, that meant that their opportunity to receive it was much greater because they had everything they needed to be pointed away from hell and to Jesus Christ. So let me explain what Paul is talking about. Here's the history lesson, okay? God plucked Abraham out of obscurity and called him to be the forefather of a great nation. He promised Abraham a child. Well, Ishmael was born to Abraham and Abraham's maid, Hagar. But that wasn't the child that God had promised. God promised a child through Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarah. So Isaac was born to the both of them. Okay, so the line of the nation continued. Well, then Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, they had twin boys. Wow, the nation is growing, right? But hold on. No, God, God purposed that these twins would be the forefathers of two nations. So the older of the twins, Esau, became the forefather of the nation of Edom, the Edomites. Then the younger of the twins, Jacob, he became the next patriarch in the line of Israel. All right, and from then on out, everybody who descended from Jacob became a part of what we now know as Israel. There's a few things we need to understand about all of that. We have to ask ourselves now, did Abraham deserve to be called by God to be the forefather of that nation? Was he just, he was so perfect, he was so worthy. No, that, that's not true. Well, what about, what about Isaac? Is it just that he was better than Ishmael? No, the Bible never tells us that. Technically, technically Ishmael was Abraham's firstborn. But you know what? God's not really worried about birth order. This became pretty clear with Esau and Jacob. Because God chose Jacob, who was the younger of the two. Well, that must mean that Jacob was better than Esau. That's sure not the case either. No, no, God chose Abraham, who was old, childless, and who lied at times. God chose Isaac, who as a father played favorites with his kids. And God chose Jacob, who was just a scoundrel. You see, none of these men deserved to be the patriarchs of God's chosen nation. You want to know what that's called? Grace. It's called grace. Grace is something 
unearned, undeserved, freely given. It's by God's grace that these men were called. And all the Jews and Paul say, who were so boastful about their heritage, needed to realize that they only stood in the bloodline of Israel because of God's grace. When Paul quoted what God said in the book of Malachi, that Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, well, this statement from God didn't refer to those individuals, but to the nations that descended from them. And the meaning of it isn't that God had this inherent disdain for the Edomites, although he hated their sin, to be sure, but it's a striking statement to show the favor that God had poured out on Israel. And Paul wants them to see that. Paul wants them to see the only reason that the Jewish people had the covenants and the promises and the temple and the law and the Messiah was because of grace. But here's the thing about the gifts of grace. They have to be received by faith. And so if somebody bought you a gift and they wrapped it up real nice and then they offered it to you, if you, if you choose not to receive that gift, well, then you miss out on all the benefits and blessings of it. Think of it this way. There was a man named Tomas Martinez. He's a homeless man living on the streets in Bolivia a couple decades ago. And one day, the authorities tracked Tomas down to tell him some pretty surprising news. He was going to inherit $6 million. I mean, talk about life-changing, right? But when Tomas saw them coming, he, uh, he ran away. They think it's because he was confused, scared, might have been afraid he was in trouble, because these were the authorities we're talking about. And apparently they never found him again. You see, these, these people came to tell him, good dude, he was a millionaire. No more living on the streets. No more living in poverty. But because he didn't listen and accept the gift, he never became a millionaire. God gave the Jewish people all these great things, to, to prepare their hearts, to point them to salvation and to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Salvation was at their fingertips. But for all these things to mean anything, to receive that salvation, they needed to receive Christ by faith. That's, that's why Paul said earlier, he said, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. All right, as he pointed out, Christ by faith who are the true children of Abraham. It's not simply about ancestry, it's about grace. And it's not just that. Paul continues, look at verse 14. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Is it, is it unjust that God's grace went to the line of Israel? Is it? Is it, is it unjust that God chose Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob over Esau? Well, no. No, no. It would be unjust if God prevented 
those other individuals from following him and living in his mercy. Which, by the way, that's what the Israelites claimed. Right? They claimed that, that regardless of way, that, that all others were unworthy except for themselves. But that was never the case. From the very beginning, God told Abraham he was going to bless all the peoples through Abraham. Salvation's always been for all people. Many non-Israelites became followers of the one true God in the Old Testament. Ishmael and Esau, they both became great nations, by the way. Don't lose sight of the fact that both of them knew the promises of God. They knew. They knew about him. They knew the things that God had given. Both had what was necessary to believe in the one true God, to follow him, and to lead their descendants to do the same thing. God's not unjust. No. No, he has mercy on whom he desires to show mercy and compassion on whom he desires to show compassion. Oh, that leads to the question, well, whom does God desire to show those things to? All throughout Scripture, it's very, very clear. Who does he desire to show mercy and compassion to? To everyone. God's mercy is available to everyone. That's why God says things like in Ezekiel, he says that he doesn't desire the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from their ways and live. That's why in 1 Timothy we're told that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants to display his mercy. By the way, we should stop and ask ourselves, what is mercy anyways? It's one of those church words we use a lot, right? Often we use it hand in hand with the word grace, grace and mercy. But these are two different things. All right, grace is getting something we don't deserve. Mercy is when we do not get what we do deserve. It's kind of like this. The last time that I was pulled over by a police officer, I deserved to be pulled over by a police officer. Because I saw the stop sign. And I also saw that my window to pull out onto 301 ahead of traffic was closing. And I realized that if I just paused at the stop sign, instead of coming to a full stop, I could stay in second gear. And I could get going, get out ahead of everybody, and be on my way. The police officer did not see it that way. And neither does the law. So as I sat there in my car, I knew that I deserved a ticket. But you know, after what seemed like a lifetime of the officer running my license, he came back and he let me go with a warning. That's mercy. I did not get what I did deserve, which was a ticket. God's mercies, his forgiveness for our sins, his mercies are available to everyone, but not everyone accepts these by faith. No, some people are like Pharaoh, who harden their hearts. Many of you know the story of Pharaoh. Despite many chances to repent, Pharaoh hardened his heart towards God time after time until finally God gave Pharaoh over to a hardened heart. Pharaoh rejected the one true God, so God brought judgment on Pharaoh and he delivered Israel. The problem is not with God's mercy. The problem is with the hardness of our hearts. Paul has more for us, so look at verse 19. He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Show what his form say to the one who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? 
What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Look, who are we to complain and to talk back to God? Whether he made us Jew, Gentile, descendant of Abraham, Ishmael, Esau, or some other unknown person, the same God is extending to us mercy and grace. We sent the Savior to die for all of us. Let's not be hard-hearted, stubborn against him, holding out in our unbelief. Those who do that remain objects of wrath because that's what they're headed for, the wrath of hell. But if they will only cling to God's gracious offer of salvation and to his merciful offer of forgiveness, then, then they will find themselves beautifully prepared as an object of mercy, whether Jew or Gentile. Before we close, I want to read a few more verses so that we can see how deep God's mercy to Israel runs. Look at verse 25. Paul writes, As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And I call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. These, these prophecies point to something that we're going to look at more in depth later in our study in Romans, which is the truth that God is not done with Israel. All right, far from it. His mercy to them remains. Despite their unbelief, he's not going to allow them to be totally destroyed like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He'll allow a remnant to remain, and many Jews will come to faith. But until that day, Paul looked with great heartache on his fellow Jews. Because Paul saw all this incredible grace from God extended to them, these spiritual blessings unlike anything else all over the world. Paul saw the long-suffering mercy of God who hadn't wiped stubborn Israel off the map but waited for them to respond in faith and Paul was heartbroken for the loss. Believers, the question is, are we? Christians, we should rejoice in the greatness of God's grace that he should extend to us this, this incredible eternal life that can never fade away, a relationship with him that can never be broken we should be so in awe of these. We should be in awe of his mercy that he would forgive us of all our sins and pardon us from the penalty of hell. And we should be heartbroken that although God is offering these things to everyone else in this world, so many people, like Israel and Paul's day, are rejecting God's grace and mercy. I mean, how many of us have family, friends, co-workers, neighbors who we know are spiritually lost? Are we, are we heartbroken the way that Paul was? Do we have unceasing anguish and sorrow in our hearts? 
Next week, we're going to talk more about what we should do with some of these truths, but we need to start right here. We need to start with this truth this morning, believers. Remember this. When we have a burden for the lost, then we will be faithful to point them to the cross. Understand that. It's when we have a burden for the lost, that is when as Christians we will be found faithfully pointing people to the cross. So if you're here wondering to yourself, well, I wonder if I have a burden for the lost. Well, you can ask yourself, are you sharing the gospel? Because if the answer is no, believer, you don't have a burden for the lost. You don't have unceasing anguish and sorrow in your hearts. And if that's true, then believers, let's pray that God would give us that gospel burden. Because I promise you, believers, that if we pray that sincerely and daily, God will answer. He will give you a burden for the lost, and he will open your eyes to the opportunities all around you to share the gospel. And when we have that burden, that, that is when we as a church will be found faithfully sharing the gospel in this community. First Baptist Church, if you can honestly say to yourself today, you don't have a burden for the lost, and I'd encourage you during this final song of invitation, fall on your knees before the Lord and ask him to give you that burden, that you would be broken over those who are separated from him, that you would have eyes open to see the gospel opportunities, that you would be bold to share the good news of salvation with others. Pray for these things. Don't just pray that right now, but pray it every single day. If you're here and you can say you have a burden for the lost, then pray that God would open your eyes to who you can share the gospel with when you leave this place. And if you are here and Jesus Christ is not your Savior, you've never given him your life, never gone to him for forgiveness, you don't know for sure that when this life is over, God is going to welcome you into heaven with open arms. If that's true for you, then friend, please understand before you leave that God is offering you the forgiveness of all your sins, all those bad things that you have done. He's offering you a pardon from the penalty of hell. He's offering you eternal life. He wants to adopt you into his family. The question is, will you give your life to him? I want you to know that Jesus gave up his life for you. That's why he died on the cross. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and mine. Three days later, he powerfully rose from the dead, proving that he is exactly who he said he is. He's the son of God, the Savior, the only one who can rescue us from sin and hell. And Jesus has been standing in heaven, waiting your whole life to rescue you from sin and hell. The Bible says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And if you've never done that, we want to give you the opportunity to do that before you leave. Let's pray together. Friend, if that's true for you, if Jesus is not your Savior, please understand that during this final song, you can come and talk with me here at the front about your questions. We can look at what the Bible says. We can pray together. But if you're ready right now to give your life to Jesus, I don't want you to have to wait another moment. So understand that you can go to Jesus in prayer. And by faith, admit to him that you know that you're a sinner. But that you know he died on the cross for you. That you believe Jesus didn't stay in the grave, but that he rose from the dead. Friend, ask Jesus to forgive you and to be your Savior. And I promise you, on the authority of God's word, he will do just that. Dear Heavenly Father, for those of us who have made that decision, who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, Help us to always be in awe of your grace and mercy in our lives. Give us a burden to share the gospel with others. Open our eyes to the gospel opportunities that are all around us. 
And help us be bold and faithful to share the truth of salvation because we just live in a world filled with people who need to hear the truth. So help us to be that church. Help us to be those believers who are heartbroken that there are people still separated from you, who are eager to share with them what Jesus did on their behalf. Father, I pray that you would lay on each of our hearts someone in our lives who needs you. We can pray for, we look for opportunities to share the truth with them. And if there's anyone here who still hasn't given their lives to you, I pray that they would make those decisions before they leave. Father, we love you. For your grace and mercy, remind us day after day that you love us more. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.